welcome to the Nerd Party. Time for a retro perspective. Hello and welcome to Retro Perspective, the show on the Nerd Party where we discuss all the movies that came out 25 years ago this week. I'm Mike. I'm John. And today we're taking a look at the movies released the week of April 15th. 1994. We had a couple of Wednesday openings, we had a Thursday opening, and we had a number of Friday openings. Yes. So, let's get started with the Wednesday openings. Uh, April 13th, 1994. The first one, which did not register on Box Office Mojo, is Naked in New York, with a 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, did you watch Naked in New York? I did not, despite the fact that that is a great title to try to get people into the theater. That's, yeah. that's a great use of keywords right there. You know, I wanted to see it because, you know, it, it was produced by Scorsese and it had Eric Close in it. And uh, was, it, was it Marissa Tomei who was in that movie? I'm pretty sure. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Mary Louise Parker. Yeah, in it. that's who it was. She's yeah. great. Ralph Macchio. And uh, yeah, the trailer looked like it was intriguing. However, the movie is not really available anywhere. If you want to buy a used DVD off of Amazon, it costs over 30 bucks. So I decided to pass on that. Yeah, okay. me too. All right, so the next movie that came out on the 13th, which was number 11 at the box office with $2 million and a 63% on Rotten Tomatoes, is Serial Mom. Yeah, Serial Mom. Serial Mom, which I did watch this week. Directed by John Waters, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Starring Kathleen Turner, who was also in Naked in New York, if I'm not mistaken. Well, she was she was definitely in Serial Mom, I can tell you that. And yeah. I, I can also tell you this is the first John Waters movie I've ever watched. Really? See, I thought yeah. you'd be a big fan. Uh, no, I mean, he's royalty in the Baltimore area, you know, and I, I was born and raised in Maryland, so everybody knew who John Waters was. I actually sat on a plane with him one time, not like with him. He was several rows away from me. And my, pretty cool. my wife had no idea who he was. And the vibe, the whole vibe was sort of like, I always, I don't know, I, I have plenty of stories like this. There was a, one time I was on the same train as Elvis Costello, but oh, like yeah. the vibe I was getting in both of those circumstances was, I really just want to be alone. And so I didn't want to be that guy, you know, yeah. I didn't want to yeah. be that guy. So I was just like, oh, cool. That's John Waters. And my wife said, who's that? I said, what? What? How can you not know who John Waters is? The guy's a name. He was on The Simpsons even. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, he's like Baltimore royalty, man. I'm not a huge Waters fan. I think the only two John Waters movies I've seen are Pink Flamingos. I show that in film school. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, Cecil B. Demented, which might be his last movie. That, that one was decent. But... Pink Flamingos did not work. I'm sorry. Yeah, if I recall correctly, Pink Flamingos is more notorious than well-made. 
sort yeah. of thing. There's a lot of weird stuff in it. I mean, that's the one which ends with, you know, a person yeah. literally eating dog feces. Yes. For real. Yes. And, you know, I mean, the whole movie is kind of like that. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't work. Sorry. Uh, the thing that I <laughs> yeah. always think of him from, to be honest, which I really admire and which I think about a lot there was one time where I was at uh, like a midnight screening of something and they were doing, they had like a pre-show with a lot of, you know, like weird, cool trailers and stuff like that. And they had a little PSA come up uh, with John Waters just sitting there smoking a cigarette. And he just says something along the lines of, hi, I'm John Waters. Get more out of life. Watch an effed up movie. And I'm like... I'm down with that, you know, I, mm-hmm. like that, that is, those are words to live by, you know? Yeah. I also remember a quote from him in an article about, uh, animal rights or something. And, uh, I, I'm going to butcher it, but it, it always made me laugh because he said, I'm all for animal rights, but you know, if a couple of rabbits have to die so I can get the right eyeliner, I'm willing to make compromises or something like that. And I was like, it just made me laugh. Yeah. Really made yeah. me laugh. He's a funny guy, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so what did you think about Serial Mom? Very underwhelming. Yeah. Very meh. Like, it's not bad. The, you know, it, and, and the thing is, that's, you know, the most loaded phrase in the English language, not bad. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I don't actively dislike it, but I also didn't care for it and couldn't see myself ever watching it again. The only really fun part of it was... You know, I mean, John Waters sets everything in Baltimore. So like, you, you know, they're driving around, they're talking about street names. They go to Hammerjacks at one point and to somebody who grew up, you know, in the in the hinterlands between Baltimore and D.C. It's like, oh, hey, cool. Hammerjacks. But that's yeah. about the level of excitement that happens in the movie. And, you know, Kathleen Turner's trying and it's. I think that the the basic problem with it is the same thing that you would run across in any of a number of other movies where it's a good concept and there are some funny little moments but it was put together simply with the idea of those funny little moments and not so much with the idea of um, a clear structure Um, Mm -hmm. and so there's enough of a structure to keep things going and there's a relatively interesting twist that it takes where you actually see the trial and the ending sort of reminded me of what was supposed to be the ending of American Beauty which was like five years later where you were supposed to go and see them on trial and it was going to be putting the whole system on trial and and those sorts of things but you know so it's cute because the era of the celebrity trial really did sort of blow up in the 90s Mm -hmm. and you know there's very much an air of that um, but yeah, it's just sort of, it's there. Yeah. It's all right. That's kind of what I thought. I mean, this seemed like the splashiest movie of the week, but at the same time I was like, I don't really think I'm going to like it that much. So let me go with something else. Yeah. 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 I think you made the right call. Perhaps. So on April 14th, Thursday, there were two movies released, two art films, one very small and one which really made an impact uh, back in 1994. The first was Living Buddha, 
which is not on Box Office Mojo, and it's not on Rotten Tomatoes, so don't know anything about it. Uh, nope. But it's a documentary, and um, it's pretty much all I know about it. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Um, so uh, the next movie is 32 short films about Glenn Gould, which I remember everyone talking about this forever. I remember the ad in the newspaper for months, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. It didn't register on um, the box office mojo, but clearly this is considered to be the best movie of the week. Yep. Did you watch it? I did. I did because it fulfilled the long-standing promise I had made myself because of course it you know almost any touchstone point in the 90s is going to wind up becoming a Simpsons reference for me because I was watching the show religiously back then but they had an episode called 22 short films about Springfield that I knew was a play on 32 short films about Glenn Gould and uh so for it's one of those ones that's been sitting on the to watch list for 25 years yeah and so it was like hey all right yeah i'll uh i'll, I'll watch it this week and i can tell you that as i've gone back and revisited it in my brain my esteem for it keeps going up um you you didn't watch it this week no i was thinking about it because i, I liked the trailer which i think was just one of the short films and, you know, obviously so many people talking about it. And also um, it's directed by this guy who made a movie called The Red Violin. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that? I haven't seen The Red Violin, but I know of it. Yeah. The, the concept of that is basically um, there's a violin which, you know, was created, I don't know, hundreds of years ago and has been passed from person to person. And the, the movie basically shows... That tells stories, short films, essentially about the owners of this violin until it's finally bought at an auction in the present day by Samuel L. Jackson. Cause not, <laughs> uh, no, I, I knew Sam Jackson was in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's good. It's a, it's a really good movie. So, but this, this is to get me to watch 32 short films about Glenn Gould. Apparently this but. is, this is a fascinating movie in a lot of regards. And again, like I said, like I, I keep, going back to it and I keep thinking even more highly of it than my initial reaction uh, would, would indicate. And uh, the actor they have now, see it's listed as a documentary, but uh, there are a bunch of reenactments. Uh, the, the actor who plays him uh, and I always C O L M. I don't know whether it's Colm or column. I've heard it pronounced both ways for, for, the guy on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, it's Colum Meany. So. Well, then this would be Colum Fior, mm -hmm. who is one of those actors where when you see him, you go, oh, that guy. You yeah. know him. Um, but so there are reenactments of things. So it's a biopic. But then that actor playing Glenn Gould acts out like this self-interview that Gould wrote where he was basically interviewing himself and he plays Gould in both states of the interviewer and the interviewee. And you see him like walking around in the background while he's asking himself these questions. Um, 
And the whole thing is fascinating because it presents such a, a complete picture of how idiosyncratic and how bizarre his behavior was. But the fact that so many people understood it was a byproduct of his genius. And I've never been familiar with Glenn Gould's work, um, but I will be now. Uh, it really sticks with you. You really get a sense of the person. And it was it's one of those things where recently, you know, I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody comes out and that sticks to basically the music, you know, the, the, the music biopic template. You know that that goes all the way back to like Oliver Stone and and all of that. This is a much more interesting template because through these little snippets, instead of trying to string together an A to Z narrative, it happens sort of the way memory does, which is flashes, important moments, and you forget some of the stuff in between. And so, yeah, I mean, like I, I think I even just talking about it now, my esteem for it is going up. Now the one question I have is I was I got it on iTunes and it was full frame mm-hmm. but I don't know whether it was supposed to be full frame or not um, it was pillar boxed so I consider it must have been intentional but I also know that I was burned when I tried to rent uh, 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 Deadfall on Amazon Prime so I don't know whether I got cheated out of the full aspect ratio I enjoyed this enough that if I were I will go back and watch it again just to see the full, um, the full aspect ratio. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of guessing that that might be the best version available, regardless. But I'm also kind of guessing. Yeah, it was supposed to be one eight five to one. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, they pillar boxed it on iTunes, so it's probably that's not a HD bummer or anything. So no. Uh, it wasn't, so I guess it's sort of a, a situ- at least it's streaming because it's sort of like the situation with, uh, when I watched, uh, where the rivers flow North earlier, mm-hmm. it was on DVD and it was full frame and I knew it was wrong yeah. while I was watching it. Yeah. So it happens. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, the movie that I watched this week was not in HD either. So yeah. yeah, but, but, but I do, I highly recommend, uh, 32 short films buckling gold, highly recommend it. All right. All right. I'll have to check it out for sure. Um, April 15th, we had a number of movies. Uh, the first one is Two Small Bodies, which there's basically no information about. I watched the trailer. It stars Fred Ward and, um, uh, oh, I forget her name. She was, she played the, the granddaughter of, of Rose in Titanic. She would later marry James Cameron. Um, I forget her name. Anyway, um, it's apparently just the two of them, and it's based on like a play, like a two-person play, and it seemed interesting uh, about like uh, a woman who's accused of of murder, I think, and then the cop who's trying to solve the crime. But whatever, uh, it, it was it was a very small movie, and I didn't watch it. I don't think it was available anywhere. Uh, Susie Amos. Yeah, there you is go. The name? Susie Amos. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she's she would. Yeah, she's been in a lot of stuff. Yeah, she's really. in uh, the Usual Suspects. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, she's blown away. Um, yeah. Oh, hey, she was in Firestorm with uh, Howie Long. There you hmm. go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next movie, which also didn't register on Box Office Mojo, is In Custody. Uh, this is a movie 
which has uh, 67% on Rotten Tomatoes. And, uh, boy, I watched the trailer for this, and I don't remember anything about it, which I guess is saying a lot. Uh, yeah. Did you watch In Custody? Oh, oh, I know, yes. It's the uh, Merchant Ivory movie. It was directed yeah. by Ismail Merchant. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I didn't see the trailer. I saw what ended up being, like, the first scene of the movie. And it's supposed to be good, but... Um, I've never been a real big fan of those Merchant Ivory movies, so I was Nor like, I. Uh, I think I can skip this one. Yeah, I, I, I didn't I didn't ride that train. It is interesting because in most of them, I think it's James Ivory, which does the di- directing. But in this case, it was Ismail Merchant, and I think it's one of the few movies that he directed. Hmm. So, eh, whatever. Anyway, next up. With 71% on Rotten Tomatoes, coming in at number 23 at the box office with $0.2 million, Backbeat. Which I could not get a copy of in time to watch, and I've wanted to see for the longest freaking time. I remember when this movie came out. I remember wanting to see it then. I remember missing it. And yes, I will flat out admit that it's because uh, the initial hook for me wasn't that it was... uh, you know, based on the Beatles lives or anything like that. It was more about the fact that Laura Palmer herself uh, was in it. And I wanted yeah. to see that and support, but missed the, missed the boat apparently. Well, you know what else she's in? Uh, vampires. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And you know, I came around on that. That's well yeah. documented. I came yeah. around on that. Anyway, I didn't see it either. It looked intriguing, but uh, was kind of low on my list of priorities for the week. So uh, I remember the interviews at the time, actually, because the music was a little harder edged than people expected from the Beatles. And I remember at the time, for some reason, Ringo Starr actually saying, no, 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 that's what we were like when we were in the clubs or, you know, words to that effect where he said, we, you know, we, we softened a little bit when we went popular. Yeah. Um, he goes, when, when we were playing the nights in the clubs, we were, you know, there was a harder edge to us. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, next uh, on the list, at number 10 at the box office with $2.7 million and a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes, White Fang 2, Myth of the White Wolf. Disney, man, keeps on churning these live action movies out. I mean, I know now they've got... Their live-action slate is Avengers and Star Wars and uh, Aladdin and The Lion King. But back in the day, it was, it was all just, just Aladdin, like, The Lion King, and White Fang too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, this movie, I, the one thing which seemed intriguing about it to me is the fact that it was directed by this guy Ken Olin, who is a veteran television director he i think was the lead director on alias for years and he's done a lot of other really cool tv shows so i was kind of like uh do i watch this one nah nah i'm still i'm still burned from blank check man yeah yeah so yeah pass on that even though it's apparently very good so Mm. who knew Mm. yeah Mm. next up number nine with uh, $2.9 million and a 25% on Rotten Tomatoes, Surviving the Game. Yeah, Surviving the Game. Starring Rutger Hauer, Ice-T, 
Gary Busey, John C. McGinley, Academy Award winner F. Murray Abraham, uh, and some actor whose name I keep forgetting. Charles S. Dutton. Oh, no. Well, I was going to get to Charles S. Dutton, but it's William something or other. But yeah, Charles S. Dutton riding that wave of fame from uh, the show Rock and, of course, Alien 3. Yeah, yeah. Um, Directed by Ernest Dickerson, who Mm -hmm. uh, was Spike Lee's cinematographer for years and years and years and then became a director himself and directed such movies as Tales from the Crypt Presents Demon Knight and yep. uh, Bones. That was the name of it, right? The Snoop Dogg movie, Bones. Oh, and, yeah, um, right. Future Sport, the pilot that uh, <laughs> that um, Robert Hewitt Wolf wrote. Uh, that was really interesting. Um, and, you know, a ton of TV, including things like The Wire, so, yes, I know you had seen this before and you watched it again, right? Oh, you bet I did. Mm-hmm. You bet I did. Did you see it? I did. This is the one that I watched. And for those people who don't know, I mean, this movie is essentially like the story, The Most Dangerous Game, where in in this case, uh, a bunch of really rich people uh, get this homeless guy played by Ice-T and basically pay him to be their guide when they go hunting in the wilderness. And then once he gets there, he finds out that they're actually going to be hunting him. And now he's just trying to survive the hunt. Um, Yeah. So how do you think it held up for you? I remember mocking the hell out of it at the time. And I guess I've just changed enough that now I look at it and say, this is a pretty good time. It's not high art. It's not anything that I'm going to heap praise upon necessarily. But I would say that the really beautiful hook that happens with it is it does, um, uh, I guess, what, what you could term a gear shift where it goes and it's not, it, it's this freaky horror movie with this tremendous setup and you're you know maybe ice T wasn't the right actor to get for this role but okay we'll we'll roll with it we'll play with it because we're getting just absolute marquee knockdown performances from from Busey and for Pete's sake F Murray Abrahams in the F Murray Abrahams in this movie. Yeah. And um so you're going along with it and it's fine and then it suddenly turns into basically first blood. Yeah. Where he's, I mean, this homeless guy who's never been in the military or anything, he he's Rambo. He's taken them out and it's fun. It becomes it. This is this is a true spiritual inheritor, I think, of the Grindhouse movies. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not necessarily good, but you'll watch like if you're if you're scanning the channels and you see it, you'll go, yeah, I'll watch that. So what was your reaction? Yeah, I actually liked it a lot. Um, I, I think that the the setup was really good. You know, I mean, they they're, they're, they don't spend much time on the actual hunt, but like even just like seeing this guy and seeing, you know, sort of his day to day life, I think was was really interesting and sort of like, 
you know, the struggles of, of a homeless person, you know, and, and that I, I find, I mean, whether or not it's realistic, I'm guessing probably not tremendously realistic, but I thought it was a really interesting portrayal of homelessness that you don't usually see. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when it gets to the hunt, like you're saying, he is just a normal guy. And I think that's one of the things which is kind of like endearing about it is, you know, like another movie would say like, oh, he's ex-military and they want to fight someone and, you know, whatever. And he's like born to, you know, be a fighter and everything. And here he's not like, even the way he sort of like just presents himself, his body language and everything he comes off like a nerd, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of like that. Like, he's just kind of like stumbling through this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but you know what? I'm mad at these people and, uh, I'm not going to let them kill me. And I, I, I like that a lot. And I don't know, like there are times where Ice-T's performance is like, oh boy, this is really not good. But there's also this quality that he brings to it, which I don't think you'd really get from any other actor. And that makes up for it, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and then sure. and it also fits in with the crazy of of a Gary Busey or an F. Murray Abraham performance, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I mean, I like all that stuff a lot. And I think that it's, you know, the action's pretty well done, you know, while the editing I, I loved the music in it. Photographed yeah. by Boyan Bazelli, who has done a lot of things since then, including Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And yeah, I mean, I like Ernest Dickerson a lot. Like, I don't know. I mean, every, everything that he does, even if it's not tremendously good, I think it's interesting, like Bones and stuff like that. And also, I, I saw him at a uh, horror film festival last year. They were showing a couple of his movies and they were showing them on a different day than what I was there. And when I went to see a movie, I went to see this new, like, indie horror movie, which was made by, like, this, like, 22-year-old kid, you know, who yeah. had just sold his movie to Blumhouse. And he thought that he was, you know, really hot stuff and everything like that. And, you know, here's, like, the world premiere of his movie. Like, the entire cast is there and everything. And Ernest Dickerson, who was just there because they were showing some of his movies. He stayed and watched the whole thing, which I thought was really cool. And then during the Q and a afterwards, like he was asking this, this kid questions and like the kid was like a total, you know, little brat and stuff like that. And, you know, Dickerson was just like interested in what it took for him to make this movie. And, you know, I, I just, I love the fact that, you know, this guy who's established, whose work they're honoring for, you know, everything, he's just like, well, you know, I'm here at a film festival. I'm going to watch some movies, some new movies, which no one's ever seen before. And I'm going to ask this kid who wasn't even born when I started making movies how he made his movie. I don't know. I think that's cool. It's, you know, it's... uh it speaks to the desire we all have to know that the people making these movies love movies in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like nothing is more heartbreaking than when you run across somebody who that fire has gone out and it's just, eh, I'm just doing a thing. Like to know that he loves movies as much as we do is yeah. a huge, huge thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited because they just announced some of the stuff for the, 
the the festival this year and the uh, guest of honor who's going to be there presenting not one but two of his movies is Joel Schumacher. Wow. He's Which be, two movies? They're showing um, Falling Down on 35mm. Okay. And they're showing Flatliners on 70mm. What? <laughs> yeah. What? And he's just oh, going to be hanging man. out all week. You know, so. Oh man, I want see. The thing is, that's that's a guy. Schumacher is a guy that I would love to meet him and shake his hand, just so I could say to him, "You didn't deserve a single thing that got thrown at you, not one." And that that is that is the God's honest truth. But I I I gotta say before we move on from uh, surviving the game, I gotta ask. We know that Pulp Fiction is coming later Mm -hmm. this year. And we all know the watch monologue by Christopher Walken. Yes. Right. I submit to you that not, I'm not saying better. I'm not doing a, you know, this versus that, but Gary Busey's recounting of the story of how he got the scar in surviving the game. I will put it in that category. That is a special moment on film where I noticed I don't know whether it was a trick of the streaming or something like that, where I noticed the camera actually went out of focus a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you don't throw that take away. Yeah. You keep that because that was a very special monologue because, and a great reminder of the fact that even though the guy has become a punchline now, Busey had some raw acting talent uh, at, at his command when he wanted to pull it out. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you get through that whole thing, which is, you know, sort of this really crazy energy. And then, you know, they top it off with ice tea saying like, do, do you tell your patients that story? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's pretty, pretty good too. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think that's just a, a great moment. And I think yeah. that that is little stuff like that is really what helps elevate, uh, elevate the movie. And also yeah. the fact that, um, you know what? I don't want to say the other thing because I hope people are listening and they make the decision to uh, to watch Surviving the Game. Okay. All right. Uh, well, the last movie for the week, which came in at number seven at the box office with $3.7 million and a 14% on Rotten Tomatoes, was Cops and Robertsons. Have yeah. you seen this movie? No. I haven't either. I remember when the trailers came out and I was like, no. And it's directed by Michael Ritchie, who did like Fletch and stuff like that and Bad News Bears and everything. So you think like, well, maybe you should give this a shot. But boy, it looks bad and I just can't do it. I'm sorry. I'm also one of the uh, few people I've in any of my circles that doesn't think Fletch is all that great. I think it's okay. Yeah, I'm not a big so. fan either. I kind of got got caught up in it, you know, back, I don't know, around like 2004 when there was lots and lots of talk of Kevin Smith doing a prequel. Yeah. But uh, that never happened and whatever. It is what it is. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So that's it for the week. Now, um, out of these, which would you say is the best? Uh, 32 short films about Glenn Gould. I think that is probably now catapulted up to favorite of the year so far. Wow. 
Not yeah. bad. Not bad at all. And I, I like surviving the game a lot. I would definitely recommend it. Not it hasn't surpassed a Hudsucker proxy for me though. No. So no. next week we have three movies from April twenty second. Those movies are Chasers, The Inkwell, and Bad Girls. But until then, John, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, look for Castle Junkie. That's who I am. But uh, mainly you'll find me at castlejunkie.com or is Castle Junkie over on Letterboxd and Goodreads. And then right here on this fine network, you can find me co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast of a different sort with Matthew Rushing. And that uh, that comes out every Thursday. So uh, head on over and subscribe to that if you want to hear some deep dive Star Wars philosophical stuff. Um, and that's where they can find me. Mike, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on Trek.fm doing a show called Tracks from the Edge. And you can also find me on FilmDamagePod.com doing a show called Film Damage. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mumbles3K. Okay, so that's it for this week. And until next week, be kind, rewind. Rewind.